G'day, thanks so much for being here. If you'd like to get notified about new episodes, get access to live events before anybody else, and read perspectives that are not included in the main podcast, that's this one here, you can subscribe to the newsletter at osherginsburg.com. That is osherginsburg.com. We come out of the womb knowing how to get what we want. We do. I call it positive manipulation. Yeah. If you can work out the other, and I'll call them the opposition, but if you can work out the opposition's priorities, intents, and motivations in the in any circumstance, not the game of Survivor, but the workplace or yeah. the local PNC committee, you know, the local community group that you're involved in, whether you're having an AGM or an election or whatnot, you're trying to negotiate a financial outcome. If you can work out priority, intent, and motivations, then you can cut a good deal. And if you cut a deal that works for yourself and the other party, and you feel like you have a win and you had a better output or outcome, prior to that negotiating happen, you, you shouldn't be scared of the fact that you got a better deal for yourself because if the other oppos- like the opposing side is happy, that's the win-win, that's positive manipulation. We only became the dominant species on the planet because we cooperate. I'm from the school of thought that applying maximum pressure at all times is a good thing, particularly when you don't know what hand the other person has. So if you apply a bit of pressure and you try and work out what their motivation is in a certain situation, then the other person will usually blink or adjust their behaviour accordingly. If that has gone in a direction that you weren't expecting, then you adjust very, very quickly. And I think what made me different on both of my seasons of Survivor was I tested people's assumptions and their priorities and their motivations very, very quickly. And when I realised I was wrong, I literally jettisoned that plan or thought track as quickly as possible and I moved on to the next one. And I kept pushing and I kept trying and trying and trying until I was absolutely certain that the person on the other side would do what I predicted they would. You can pretend to be someone that you're not, Mm. but after about three days, you'll forget how to do it. Exactly right. And then you'll be caught out by your own traps Mm. and then it it all falls to pieces and you only get one chance to really let people know who you are. Mm. Uh, And because the way our memories work, that's what they bind to. Mm. And if you've given them something false straight away and then you come out as your real self, Mm. then they can't trust you. Mm -mm. And then it's all over. Sometimes if you do take a risk, the the reward is bigger. And you don't have to play that way in life or in poker. Like in poker and in Survivor in particular, if you play an ultra-conservative game, you can get to the end. And it will have a certain outcome. And if you're happy with that outcome and it works for you, then stay on that course. But if you want a better deal for yourself, sometimes you need to take a risk. You need to back your judgment. You need to campaign and advocate for yourself. And you need to take the bull by the horns and just do it sometimes. Because if you don't, who else is going to do it for you? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, welcome to the show. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Uh, this is Better Than Yesterday, here to make it better every single episode since 2013. I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm a podcaster. I'm an author. I'm a TV host. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm a somewhat absent-minded husband, and I am an occasional apprentice landscaper. Look, I own a pair of gaiters that go over my socks and a, uh, a pair of gloves that say landscaper on them. So qualified. Uh, I'm glad you're here. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. If this is your first episode, there are hundreds of others to listen to, but there's something that you may not know about me. I'm a massive fan of Survivor. I happen to think that the game Survivor is the greatest game ever invented by humans. Yes, the game Survivor, the TV show, is named after the game that they play. The game is called Survivor, and you watch a TV show about it like The NRL is the game. Rugby League is a game. You watch a TV show about the game. You watch Survivor. You're watching a TV show about the game. It's simply the greatest game ever created by humans, as far as I'm concerned. It combines so many things into one set of rules. All the strategy and game theory of a high-stakes chess match, along with the hardest day-long CrossFit class that you've ever had to do, that sometimes lasts for hours, with all of the diplomacy and delicacy of an intergovernmental climate conference, along with camping in the wild like your Bear grills for something like 55 days. It's widely accepted that the greatest player to have ever played this game is an Australian man who comes from a place called Bankstown. You may know him as King George. There was a few times when I lived in the States and I would spend time in New York City, I would go and play Scrabble in Washington Square Park. That's where people sit in the park and they play Scrabble against each other. It was wonderful. I read about it in a book. Great book. But next to the Scrabble tables, there's some chess tables. The players at the chess tables, absolute weapons. Now, there were, there were the kind of people, the kind of chess players who could walk past another game on their way to the shops or whatever and without breaking step glance down at a board and go, black wins in six, and then just carry on with their day. The players who were in that game just exasperated that this person has figured it out with a blink. Now, that is what my guest today is like with people. George Mladenov is a former political operative for the state government, and he absolutely astounded viewers every time he's been on Survivor 
with his incredible game theory and his devastating manipulation skills. He's written a book about it, How to Win Friends and Manipulate People. It's a brilliant how-to. Now, you might see manipulating other people as devilish. You might see it as dastardly. However you see it, knowing the strategies that could be used against you is half the battle. And as the prophet Zach de la Roca once said, know your enemy. But King George could not be further from a devilishly, dastardly person who is an enemy. He is a delightful, good-hearted, kind man with solid principles and a powerful desire to make the world a better place. You are going to learn some fascinating things today about Survivor, about politics, the power of visualization, the true trick of negotiation, a lot about timing of your move, and you're going to learn, surprisingly, a fair bit about poker. I was over the moon to have George come to my house and have a chat with me. Enjoy this audience with the King. George, thank you for coming to my home. I um, am such a humongous fan of your survival work. I am so fascinated to talk to you uh, because it's no understatement. You've just come off a plane this morning. I have. I landed from LA straight to your house, Osha, and it's a real delight to be here. <laughs> Sir, <laughs> uh, and I told you this when I told you, uh, when, I, when I saw you the other day, uh, but I'll tell you this again. There's um, a person I've worked with for a long time in, in the States, and in her words, King George is the greatest person to have ever played the game anywhere on the planet. Mm. And this is a person that watches every one ever. Mm -mm. Um, and that's how you're known. And it's what you've just come. You've just come from a bunch of conventions, haven't you? Well, uh, like for me, the whole kind of like TV journey is a real strange one, Osher. And um, I, I talk a bit about this in my book as well, where I had a kind of like, I had a, I had a career. I, I became admitted as a lawyer when I was 23. And then I was um, relatively active in the Labor Party at the time. I used to go to branch meetings and my old boss, um, Tanya Mihalik, when she was the member for Bankstown, she said, you need to come in and work in my office and help me on my shadow portfolios. And I did that for five years and her chief of staff and whatnot. And then I had this kind of like life revelation in 2017 where I told myself without trying to sound arrogant, but um, my boss had really high output in those portfolios because we worked really well as a team together. And um, I, I had this revelation in 2017 when I told myself, how much more can I achieve as an opposition staff member. Yeah. And um, I think that was one of the first points in my life when I made a decision for me and I left. Um, and it was very hard for her because how do you replace a good staff member? And I went to the public service where I got 50% more money and did about 2% of the work. That's what I always joke about. But then it was about 2020 and as someone that was like a lifelong Survivor fan, not a hardcore, you know, studying every episode length by length, but it was about 2020. And I was Mate, watching I, I a, love the game, but I don't play the online forum games. Correct, correct. On, you, yeah. you, you were well, playing I it did, in high school. I did, when I, was, <laughs> I did when I was 13. I did when I was 13, but not as an adult. So then I literally just saw an ad pop up when season four was airing yeah. going, would you like to be on a future season of Australian Survivor Apply Now? And I thought, wow, why haven't I done this before? And yeah. then, you know, I did it. And then I was going through the audition process that you do when you go on a TV show and um, it was about February 2020. Obviously, the COVID pandemic was happening and I thought I was going to be on and then things kind of changed. So when we fast forwarded through a year and then my kind of like TV and survivor journey started, I really had at the back of my mind, I've waited my whole life and through a global pandemic to do this. 
and I'm not going to waste the opportunity. So when we when we tie it into like you know the reception of Australian Survivor and myself in the United States, um, I'm really proud of that. But I really appreciate that, and I never take it for granted because that's what's given me a career. That um, if you told George, you know, five years ago or ten years ago, you're going to be going to um, Survivor events and parties in the United States, and then like I'm one of, getting paid, getting paid. <laughs> thank you, um, thank you for everyone that booked me. But like I'm the draw card in the room, and yeah. then I know that everyone in the United States tends to watch it. Um, but I'm like living my best life, and um, sometimes I tell myself I've I've turned like a a lemon into lemonade, and um, I deserve it. And if it brings people joy and entertainment, uh, long may it continue. I don't know if you've you turned a lemon into lemonade. I think you've operated by the same set of parameters, judging by the story that you tell in the book. You, mm. You're generally operating by the same set of parameters that you have your whole life. I yeah. have. And I think that's the secret to TV. A lot of people want to go on a reality TV show, and they apply time and time again, and I think where a lot of people fail is they're not the truest version of themselves. And if I think back to my Survivor audition video, I told them the three truest things about myself. I'm a political operative, I'm from Bankstown, and this is what the two of them together means. And if you put me on your TV show, this is what I think the outcome will be. And then like, I had this really strange moment um, before my final tribal council in the Outback the executive producer, Keely Sontag, is a phenomenal executive producer. She hugged me in the tent and she just went, George, thank you so much for everything that you did because everything you said in your audition video, you've actually done. And I was like, well, isn't that what I'm supposed to do? Like, is it? I know it sounds weird yeah. saying it, but I was like, isn't that what I'm supposed to do? Yeah. And, and then she was like, no, usually people say they're going to play you know, a certain style of a game and it never happens. They freeze on camera or they get scared. But yeah. Um, I think that birthed that glory or death mentality. <laughs> and I, I, I yeah. always go for glory. And if it results in, um, you know, metaphorical death, so be it. You can pretend to be someone that you're not. Mm. But after about three days, you, you, like, you'll forget how to do it. Exactly right. And then you'll be caught out by your own traps. Mm, mm. And then it, it all falls to pieces that you only get one chance to really let people know who you are. Mm. Uh, and because the way our memories work, that's what they bind to. Mm, mm. And if you've given them something false straight away and then you come out as your real self, mm. then they can't trust you. Mm, mm. And then it's all over. And you certainly in a case where you're trying to get people to fall in love, mm -mm. forget about it. See, the other thing that I always find interesting from like former reality TV show contestants, and it doesn't matter which show that they go on, um, they always talk about how certain, you know, character traits get portrayed in mm. an edit. And I always go, you you get what you get and you are what you are. And that comes from two perspectives. So obviously, you know, there's a post-production process and in that process, you've got production companies and a TV network trying to make the most entertaining TV show possible, but they can also only show so much. And mm. when people get upset with how they're characterized or paraphrased or the amount of airtime that they get, they either weren't their truest version of themselves, they were putting on that facade that you were talking about, or they just weren't very entertaining, Osha. And it's one of the two. And as someone, and I, 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 I say that because, you know, I know I broke a world record in terms of airtime on a reality TV show the first time on Survivor. I had 21% of the airtime and um, I will 
always say I was grossly under-edited. And then the second time, I nearly broke my world record and I was about 1% short. But it's just like, do you know why that happened for me? Because I went out there and I was George from Bankstown using my knowledge, my experience to make an entertaining TV show. And I was an entertaining character. And here I am sitting in your house recording this podcast. But it, what, the way you're describing it, it and certainly listening, I, I listen to books, uh, certainly listening to your book, I have fantasies of being on the show. Do it. Hosting it. I, I once hosted, I'll tell you that I know, later. I hosted I know. the thing once, but I absolutely want to get on the show. But because I know how, I, I know how the sausage is made. It's mm. the only reality show I think I'd ever go on. Mm. And listening to your book, it's like, motherfucker, that's exactly what I would do mm. when it comes to the uh, the talking heads or the um, or the diary room or whatever you want the to call it. The confessional is what mm-hmm. I call it on Survivor. It was, A, I'm going to give you something that plays what you've just seen and I'm going to give you something that's going to play what I'm about to do. And here's two different versions depending on mm. how it pans out because what I'm doing then, my whole goal, my life changed. Once I got sober, I, mm. I kind of had to figure out a different way to go about my work. Mm. If I'm going into my job to make everyone else's day as easy as possible, what ends up happening is I do a fucking great job. Correct. And they are thrilled but what you're doing is you're making that the was, post-production was it, easier, probably making the producer's days easier as possible. They're like, no, no, let's get George because we know he's not only going to tell us what's going on, he's going to provide the exposition. He's former political operative. He used to brief. He only speaks in sound bites. Mm-hmm. We'll be fine. And you make their day easy. You know, I had this revelation on day six. We were The, the outback was really hard. It was a lot harder than Samol because of just the extreme heat and the extreme cold at night. So we were really depleted about day 26 in the outback. And as someone that had to speak to my former boss at 5 a.m. every single day before she did her morning radio on her portfolio lines, I would speak in sound bites. And that's just what I did. And then it was, um, I was sitting with a producer, we were doing our confessionals, and then he asked me something. And then I gave him an answer. And then I said, no, no, let me just give you one more grab. And I gave him a second answer. And then he started going to the next question. I went, no, I'm not done yet. Oh, I'm not done yet. I'm just going to give you this perspective just in case that one works better for you. And then he had this look of kind of like fright and delight in his eyes. And he let me do it. And then I did yeah. it. And then when he when I finished, he goes, George, are you producing this segment or me? And then I was just like, oh, my God, I talk in sound bites. This is just the... This is the 10 word line in a media release that I yep. would just do naturally. Yep. And not only did it work in that kind of like political con- context that I was really good at as a staffer, but it works in terms of making a TV show. It, and it's certainly, if you if you understand how it is like, poor Matthew, he's got no idea what he's going to walk into. You know, if you give him that three weeks beforehand, mm. they'll be like, holy fuck. Mm. He, and what makes you, show, shows you to be an incredible player. Mm. It's, and, but if, if there's no other show that you could get away with that mm. because there's no other show where a participant in a reality co- uh, situation, TV show, would be, uh, I guess, encouraged to produce themselves. Mm. But it is like another, an extraordinarily deeper layer of the game that people might not have any idea about, mm, particularly mm. if it comes to a public vote, which they don't haven't done in Australia for a while because of the mm. But if you're talking to a public vote, you want to give the audience as much opportunity to see your game and love you and abide with you. And it's the really, uh, it's such an, ex- it's, I think it's the best game that humans have ever invented. I really I do. I agree. But do you know what? And I've thought about this. Having done the Amazing Race as well, people always ask me, how are they similar? How are they different? And what I always say is in the game of Survivor, the player 
even they go even though they're going through the the TV production process, but the player always controls what happens in the game to a certain degree. You control who you walk up to in camp, you control the conversations you have, you can observe the other conversations, you can try and guess, but you can take the initiative in your own hands to control your destiny in the game and try and not worry about, you know, what a production going to do in terms of a twist or a future challenge or whatnot. And I think I did that really, really well the first time where I was like, I can only control so much and I'm going to control it to the hundredth percent of my ability as much as possible. And um, it worked for me. And having done The Amazing Race, which I was a huge fan of that show, um, I had a 16th birthday that was Amazing Race themed and you had 10 teams of two running around the streets of Bankstown and Punchbowl for my birthday with my mates from um, soccer and high school. And um, what made the race so different to Survivor, it wasn't a case of, well, I can walk up and talk um, to this other contestant and try and, you know, influence an outcome. It was you're going to a challenge, you're doing it, you're getting in your tuk-tuk or your taxi, you're doing it. And um, I had a lot of fun going through the amazing race as a, as a TV show and as a, you know, as a hobby and as a gig, if you want to look at it like that. But um, for me, it wasn't Survivor because in Survivor, I could do whatever I wanted basically and it was fun. I think the Survivor is one of the greatest games ever invented by humans because Mm. ultimately, what is any game? It's an agreement. Mm -hmm. You know, why, you mentioned soccer, why should we give a shit if the people in the red t-shirts get this ball over there? We just agree that it's really important Mm -hmm. and 100,000 people in a stadium will pay lots of money and go out of their way to cheer when it happens, Mm. all right? So what I love about this game, this format is so extraordinary uh, because it's about humans. It absolutely is. It's about humans being, uh, getting what it is that they want out of each other because we are a communal species. We only became the dominant species on the planet because we cooperate. 100%. And- Unfortunately or fortunately, fucking other people over is a part of Mm. how we occasionally get what we're after. Now you can play your life, uh, which is the other great thing about sport. Sport is war without weapons. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Survivor is, it is life without, not without consequence, but it is an experiment in how you can live life if you want, Mm. right? If you want to play and be a dastardly bastard the whole time, because it's such a beautiful self-riding ship, you've got to go to the final vote. You've got to convince the mm-hmm. jury. If you fuck people over too hard, forget about it. They're not voting for you. Absolutely. And I think the, the beauty of Survivor truly is, and this is why it's been around for 25 years, it's a game of politics. So when you got the political operative into the game, and I was acutely aware of that, I told myself, I just have to focus on my strengths, and that is politicking. But from my perspective, having been involved in the sausage making of politics in the Southwest Sydney Labor Party context for as long as I was at the time, I also knew what works in politics and what I like in politics. And yes, there's always deal broking and everyone has a hidden agenda. Um, But usually if you show your cards and some kind of intent and you get that level of agreement, um, you get that win-win outcome. And that's what I call in the book, good manipulation. Um, But most definitely in politics, particularly when there are internal party ballots and branch ballots and, you know, factions fighting over delegates at conferences and whatnot, sometimes people come to you with bad intent. And what you have to do as an individual is either try and get the best deal for you in that situation or try and shift the narrative so it supports you on your agenda. And the secret to my survivor game is very simple, Osha. So 
Yes, I'm the greatest ever Australian Survivor villain. I know that. But if you look at my game at its very core, at its essence, I really do protect my people to the death. And if people came for me, I got them every single time. But if they came to target one of my Alliance members, it was the same reaction. And both times I got to the end with my Alliance. In the Outback, it was with Haley and Kara and Way up until Flick won that immunity. And it was very different in Samoa. In Samoa, it was just me and my Alliance the whole time through and I could always pivot left and right. And both times one of my friends won. And then I, I look at it like this. Would I have, did I want to win in the Outback? Of course I did. And I'll say until my dying breath, Haley robbed me and I deserved it more and a bit of jury beat me. And it is what it is. But Haley's also one of the best survivor players worldwide ever and a great friend of mine. Um, but in Samoa, it really didn't matter to me, Osha. Like I, I told myself as I was out there, I've done everything under the sun and more. And I knew what the equation was when Liz won that immunity challenge. If she won that final immunity challenge, I knew I was toast. And I really didn't care because I knew that would mean she would win. And I did what I did on the jury bench to make my friend win, even though all three of them were my friends. I got to the end with my allies. I coached them. I encouraged them to do things every time. And I felt like the World Cup winning coach on that jury bench when she got there. And then it didn't make a difference to me because it was just like the perfect outcome either way. And sometimes like when you look back at that episode seven tribal council as well, and I was having my very deliberate tiff with Simon to goad him and provoke him and push his buttons and whatnot. I remember watching that going, that is something that George has done every lunchtime since 1996. <laughs> like this guy has no idea that he is being marionetted to respond like this. But then Simon started talking about didn't you want to win and he fell for that trap where <laughs> people get tunnel vision on the crown and the win and whatnot and they yeah, forget yeah, about yeah. the process behind it. And if you don't control that process, not only are you not going to win, you're not going to get anywhere close. And um yeah, I think it's always interesting in life. Like people, and it's it's a little bit of game theory that I haven't studied, but like the the core principle of game theory is you've got, if, if you offer a deal to someone and it works for them and it works for you and you have a finer bit of negotiation in between, you take the deal and you go with it. And that was my survivor game. We're getting ready for this. I found I found an email between myself and um, one of the um, one of the producers that I knew. Because I had to just email. I was like, "Holy fuck!" Last night was the greatest <laughs> thing I'd ever seen. It was you and the old guy and and Matt. Matt. Yeah. And it was like watching a koala Joey trying to cross a highway in front of a three vehicle road train mm-hmm. in slow motion, and then looking at the headlights, going, "Oh, <laughs> he got." And what I love about this game so much mm. is that if you're a fan of the game, if you get got like that, it's mm. kind of an honour. Well, it should be. It should be. But the, the interesting thing is this. It's like Simon, when we were out there in Samoa, called Jerry and Matt my pawns. And, of course, they were my pawns. I said that in a confessional. Um, but Jerry and Matt always stayed behind me on my side because working with me was the best thing for their games. And they both got to the end together without me. But what you don't see behind the scenes is I would spend time every single morning in camp telling Matt and Jerry what they were doing good in the game. I built them up. So when we had, there was one tribal council, I think it was with six people left. And Simon actually said in front of the jury, oh, Jerry and Matt 
uh, George's pawns. And Jerry's the one that turned around, old guy, old codger Jerry, as I called him. He turned around and said, you had a mentor when you were bodybuilding in the gym. And Simon was like, yeah. And Jerry goes, George is my mentor in this game. He coaches me. He helps me. I'm making my own decisions, but he is benefiting me in this game. And then that was like a real moment of pride for me. It was it was beautiful. It was beautiful. What were those What were those conversations like? And the like, say in the mornings, and you well eating, for me. Well, together? as a former speech writer for politicians, I would basically write their final tribal council speeches for them. All right. And then they needed to know that they had a viable path of winning, and that meant keeping the status quo together, which was working with King George. Right. So I would be, I would literally go, Jerry, you're going to be talking about, you know, your revenge plan. And we nearly turned on Shawnee at Tribe Swap. And then your plan came to fruition. And then with Matt, that was a bit harder for me. And I tried to think back, like, what did I, what was I saying to Matt on the time to make him feel like he had a good game? But I would say things like, you made the key decision to jump on board the, the pirate ship that I started talking about at Tribe Swap. And then you survived that bit and you were the mole at Merge. And because you were the mole, the Vigilante Alliance formed and here we are at the end. And that's why you deserve the crown yeah, right. and you won immunity challenges. So I would, I would literally tell them what they were doing good. And then in my mind, I'm like, when people start attacking our relationship to, to, for them to turn against me, yeah. I think they're going to value the good more than the uh -huh. negative. It was a case of a positive campaign yeah. winning the ballot against a negative campaign that always happens in politics. You talk about, yeah, you talk about that in the book when it comes to, you know, it says on the, on the cover, it says mm. how, to, how to win friends and manipulate people. Mm -mm. And let's be honest, we all manipulate every day. Mm -mm. It's not, manipulate is, uh, can be used as a dirty word, I guess, when it is to leave the other person If there's negative less, intent, yes. correct. If, you, if both parties end the interaction with something that they value, mm. it might, is it manipulation? Maybe, just because it wasn't their idea. I call it positive manipulation. Yeah. And then I get annoyed by the word, you know, influence because now being an influencer means something very different when Dale Carnegie wrote that book with a very similar title and I'm, I've been assured by my uh, legal team uh, there's no legal risk at all but um, it comes down to semantics and then I break this down in a couple of the chapters where if you can work out the other and I'll call them the opposition but if you can work out the opposition's priorities intents and motivations in a in any circumstance, not the game of Survivor, but the workplace or yeah. the local PNC committee, you know, the local community group that you're involved in, whether you're having an AGM or an election or whatnot, you're trying to negotiate a financial outcome. If you can work out priority intent and motivations, then you can cut a good deal. And if you cut a deal that works for yourself and the other party and you feel like you have a win and you had a better output or outcome prior to that negotiating happen, you, you shouldn't be scared of the fact that you got a better deal for yourself because if the other oppos like the opposing side is happy, that's the win-win. That's positive manipulation. But of course there are people with bad intent that will try and manipulate you to use you to make something only work for them. And then what I hope more than anything after people read my book is A, they'll be entertained. Um, B, they'll have a lot of insight, but C, I hope they can differentiate between good manipulation and negative manipulation. So you mentioned a couple of intense things there. Not everyone's going to be at an AGM. Not everyone's mm. going to be in a board meeting. I've, I've been a part of both. Uh, but things like, you know, everything's relative, right? Mm. So things like a, a, a PNC, things yep. like a church group, things like, I don't know, 
I'm I'm a part of a fellowship of men and women that help each other stay sober. Mm-hmm. And there's things where the meetings come together and people try to decide uh, where should we go? Is should we have the meeting here? Should we go mm-hmm. over there? Mm-hmm. And there's going to be half of the room wants this, and there's some half of the room on that. You mentioned three things to look out for. How do we how do we try to find those three things in those situations? Well, the examples that I use in the book is I think what helped me just generally in life, particularly through politics as well, when I was a young staffer, is um, sometimes you have to make an educated guess. And you have to um, either stereotype or test an assumption that you've made. And you have to keep testing because um, the the poker example I use is this. Like when you're playing poker, there are known certainties. There are 52 cards and then you see a flop and a turn and a river and whatnot. And you don't know what the other poker players have in terms of their cards, but you know what you have. So if you narrow yourself going to what is the probability of me winning with two known cards in my hand and say three known cards on the deck, you can make that mathematical calculation. And then there are other factors that you can apply to the situation to try and make it work for you. And like it worked for me on Survivor. I'm from the school of thought that applying maximum pressure at all times is a good thing, particularly when you don't know what hand the other person has. So um, if you apply a bit of pressure and you try and work out what their motivation is in a certain situation, then the other person will usually blink or adjust their behavior accordingly. If that has gone in a direction that you weren't expecting, then you adjust very, very quickly. And I think what made me different on both of my seasons of Survivor was I tested people's assumptions and their priorities and their motivations very, very quickly. And when I realized I was wrong, I literally jettisoned that plan or thought track as quickly as possible and I moved on to the next one. And I kept pushing and I kept trying and trying and trying until I was absolutely certain that the person on the other side would do what I predicted they would. Again, if if you look at that episode seven, Tribal Council, um, I had one giant priority out of that night. I needed Simon to torch his relationship with Stevie. Everything else was immaterial. So everything that I did for that entire night, particularly after Simon won individual immunity, was to goad Simon into telling Stevie, you're not worthy of my idol, which we thought was an idol at that time. And he didn't. And it was fantastic. And do you know why he didn't? Because I told myself there is a 99.9% chance Simon, who went home with two idols last time, is only going to be playing for Simon. And I tested that theory and it worked. And then, of course, I needed to, you know, have Shawnee and Liz come on my side. They needed to be comfortable with the vote for Fraser, which they were. If I shot Geordie's name at that night, that would never have happened. Um, And then, like, it's just the art of compromise, Mm. making assumptions, testing the odds, skewing the edge in your favor and trying to get that little hedge and then making it work. But more than anything else, you need that element of self-belief as well, because like, if you're not confident in the plan, and I look at this in the workplace example, if you're not confident in a proposal you're putting to your manager or to your director in, you know, the private sector, the public sector, in the work that you're delivering, your senior isn't going to be confident in your output either. But if you believe it and then you can advocate your case and your cause and then there's a bit of to and fro negotiating the outcome, usually it'll go in your favour. Just a moment away from George to say that tickets for the live show that we do, NTNN, NNN, Real Stories, Fake News, we are returning to the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. 
10 shows only. The tickets are on sale right now, March 28th. It's such a fun time. There's special guests every single night. Uh, March 29th, the second show we're doing, is actually my 50th birthday. So yeah, you want to come be a part of that? Tickets are in the show notes. You can also find them at osherginsberg.com. We're back with King George in just a moment. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If Survivor is the greatest game ever invented by humans, I think Texas Hold'em Poker is possibly the greatest metaphor we can have of what it is to make a decision mm-hmm. uh, in anything in life. And Maria Konnikova's thinking, uh, Maria Konnikova's book, uh, The Biggest Bluff, is mm-hmm. brilliant. So is Annie Duke's Thinking in Bets, which is also a fantastic read. Uh, what is it that you have learned about decision making from playing poker? I think from poker, and this is kind of like I, when I started working in politics, I could have become a semi-pro or a pro because I saw the people around me at those um, APL games that like the ones that you're talking about jump up this, to the this next This is the level. one at the RSL. Correct, so my, at your local pub and club. My buddy Barrington just got one at North's the other day. Yeah. Uh, and he's standing there with his trophy and, and like- And you feel good. And then I think the difference between a good poker play and a bad one is simple. The good one isn't scared to do things irrespective of the two cards that they're holding in front of them. What they do is take advantage of the circumstances before them and applying pressure in terms of like betting and doing so without fear tends to work out more often than not in the long term. And that works in politics, it does. Because like in in politics, sometimes you have to take a community on a journey if you're just looking at it from like a a member representing an electorate perspective um, or for a minister or a shadow minister. And I always had worked um, in opposition where you always had to be on the tack you had to press the cause to show the community and the media why the government was wrong on their particular point of view on any policy point in a portfolio. And what worked then and what works in poker is aggression, basically. And it is hedging your bets. It is making a move, backing a decision, but then in poker, sometimes it's realizing that you're wrong. And what you do in a poker game, if you've two bet or three bet, and then the other person keeps betting and every bone in your body is going, I think I'm beat here. And I could go kamikaze move and go all in on the river and I'm knocked out of the tournament. But in poker, you can fold. And the good thing about poker and in life is another hand gets dealt and then it starts again right at that moment. 
I believe it was Kenny Rogers mm. that said, you've got to know when to. You've got to know when to fold them sometimes. You've got to know when to fold them. I, th- I think it's not just poker, it's politics. It's it's when you're in the workplace looking for a, a wage increase, it's about risk and reward. And sometimes if you do take a risk, the, the reward is bigger. And you don't have to play that way in life or in poker. Like in poker and in Survivor in particular, if you play an ultra-conservative game, you can get to the end and it will have a certain outcome. And if you're happy with that outcome and it works for you, then stay on that course. But if you want a better deal for yourself, sometimes you need to take a risk. You need to back your judgment. You need to campaign and advocate for yourself. And you need to take the bull by the horns and just do it sometimes. Because if you don't, who else is going to do it for you? I watched Wolfgang, who's our youngest, Mm -hmm. uh, manipulate adults in a room before he was even verbal. Mm Mm-hmm. We come out of the womb knowing how to get what we want. We do. Do you think it's conditioned out of us? I think think people are just scared to just ask for something sometimes. And the biggest motivating factor for me in politics was I live in a community in southwest Sydney in Bankstown where we have never gotten our fair share and it is infuriating to me. And part of the reason is because of just life and cultural reasons, like people in Southwest Sydney and in other parts of Australia and other parts of the world don't ask for something. And then once I realised that was the problem, like in, in my mind, from my perspective, the solution is to demand what you're entitled to and to advocate your cause. On the more kind of like individual level, like if you're in a work setting and you're a high performer and the employer needs you and you're not you feel like you're not getting paid enough advocate for your damn cause like put it on a piece of paper what you're doing for the company and say if these circumstances don't change in terms of like financial remuneration i'm going to look and see if the grass is green on the other side but like i talk about on the book you can't bluff that situation because if you're not a high performer if you don't deliver output Sometimes in life, the grass isn't greener on the other side. But I, I, I look at it and it's just like, you know, it, it truly is infuriating for me. Like if, if I use the political example, you get safe seats and I'm from like a safe Labor area. And then sometimes the Labor MPs that have been there for a long time just don't deliver because they don't need to. There's no pressure applied on them. And it's annoying. If you could change something about our political system, what would you do? I think it's in a democracy, the people are always right. And I don't think that's a cliche. Um, Of course, they can be influenced by things like the media, for instance, or or scare campaigns. But the role of a member of parliament and a political party is to reflect the interests and the priorities of their local communities. And if the local community doesn't feel like what's being offered to them works for them or it's not in their best interest, then they make their determination on ballot day. And I always joke about when I lost to Haley on Survivor, I felt like I was a Labor candidate running in the state seat of Vaucluse. And I was never going to win that electorate. It wasn't a surprise to me. And no matter what what I said or I did in those circumstances would not have changed the outcome. But what, what I hope, and I feel like I feel like there is kind of change, is I, I feel like what we saw with the Teal movement happening in safe liberal seats has 
pushed the Liberal Party or the coalition to be more intuitive to what their kind of like safe seats want in terms of priorities. And I feel like if I was going to make a prediction in terms of, say, like the next federal election that we have here in Australia, I feel like the same kind of like community intuition um, will be happening in safe Labor seats in outer parts of metropolitan Australia, say in the suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane and whatnot, where if you've had long-term safe Labor MPs who really don't deliver much for their local communities, might start seeing their primary vote go down to the point where their seats aren't as safe anymore. And I welcome that. I say that as a as a, as a Labor supporter and as a Labor member, but if it results in truer democracy and more outcomes being delivered for local communities, then that's a good thing because accountability is what you need in politics more than anything else. Which is something that we have struggled with in our country mm. and, uh, unfortunately, to quite awful, you know, acclaim mm. in, in very high-profile ways. Mm. You know, you can pork barrel so much, mm. millions mm. of dollars of stuff and still win again mm. or do something. You know, and that's that that really that really sucks, you know. Mm. How are we supposed to show to our kids, you know, you got to be a good person at school, you got to do the right thing, you can't mess the, people over. The starting point is people need to get more interested. And I, I wrote this in my book and I meant it, like, Having worked in an electorate office, and I had a very hardworking boss, where the slightest issue, no matter how irrelevant it may have seemed, and it, I think I used the example of street humps, where three neighbours in a row in a street of George's Hall said, there are too many speeding vehicles on this road in George's Hall. And we, like, we raised it, the member through me, her representative on the council's traffic committee, really boring and unglamorous, raised it as an issue and the council did nothing. And we were like, right. Maximum pressure time. Letter goes out to every single household on that street. We're coming over for a street meeting. Members concerned about speeding vehicles. There were 190 residents that came at like 10 o'clock on a Wednesday. And it's a chicken and an egg situation. So you need a hardworking MP that generally cares. But the other side is you need active residents. And people should not be scared to hold members of parliament to account. But if I was going to say... How would we fix the issue on a civics level? Like, I feel like we should have more kind of like encouragement of being politically active in schools. Irrespective of political views, you can do it apolitically, not to push people into boxes that might upset parents or whatnot, but to to make it very clear that like in a place like Australia, we take it for granted that we have a representative democracy. Um, we have multiple political parties. You can we have independence now as well, and climate movements and whatnot. Um, but if if people band together and advocate and campaign on local priorities, they can get elected. I think we saw that in the last federal election, where like blue ribbon liberal seats just fell down, and it actually brought down the government. The the way to get into the schools is a you know that's terrifying probably to many people because mm. it is. It's fodder for the AM talkback. It's fodder mm, for mm. the what next kind of table thumping late night TV mm. people. You know, you've had to deal with these people quite a bit. Mm, mm. When when you think about those folks, the guys that seem to just doesn't matter what the issue is, mm. they their angle, their sell, selling point is to well, just basically othering. Mm, you know, what's your what's your take on I, having that in our community as a as a as a thing. The thing is, people are allowed to have different views in Australia, Osha. And um, as someone that had to hand out like 
how to vote cards or flyers at train stations and polling booths, some at safe seats, some at not safe seats. If you find someone's not interested in the message that you're delivering, you just move on. And I feel like particularly now people get worked up on a lot of issues and there's always a lot of noise. And I think we did see that in the voice referendum. There was a, a, a shit ton of noise, if I'm going to be crude, and people getting emotional about it and whatnot. But the best thing to do is to sometimes tune out because if there is like, if you're going to use that talkback radio um, example, like it is a certain kind of demographic that listens to talkback radio and the role of the the radio jocks um, that present those programs is to present a show that's interesting to that audience. And they do that very well. And if you don't like what's happening on a particular program, don't listen to it. Move on and find something that you're interested in. But I'm adamant that like the I I say it's if you don't agree, best to best to disagree. Um, what I don't like is when you have such polarization on different issues mm. and then it turns into like unrest, like a, not civil unrest, but like unrest. And then um, we see that kind of polarization in the United States where it just came from. And it's mate. not it's, it's not conducive to anything good. No. And I don't want that in Australia. But in saying that, like if if different like demographic groups and age profiles and whatnot have um, competing priorities on certain issues, well, that's that's fine. At the end of the day, one person has one vote in Australia and people cast their vote on election day. And the people are always right sometimes. How do you think we might be able to as a country, as someone who's worked in the halls of politics for so long, mm -hmm. how do you think we as a country might be able to get to a point of like, listen, we all want to have clean water. Mm. How we get there? We have different ideas, but how can we get a little more to like looking at the horizon a bit more? The difficult thing about being in government is governing. And um, before I went out to Samoa the second time, I was on the board of a, of a local club with a former member for Auburn, well, long retired, but he was part of the old uh, car Labor government for 12 years. And do you know what he told me? The longer that they were in parliament, the more difficult things got because just decision-making full stop became a difficult thing for that government. And if I was gonna share my kind of like political insight, there is that kind of like balance point that governments find between doing something that makes them palatable to an electorate and some sometimes um, being palatable to an electorate doesn't um, align well with making decisions that are, say, in the state or the country's best interest. Because if you make a tough decision, there's an electoral consequence. And that is the difficulty of government. Um, I come from the point of view that the people respect good decisions being made. And when you look at someone like Keating in the 80s, when I was only like an infant, um, made lots of tough economic decisions as treasurer and then prime minister, and then he got whitewashed at the 96 election with Howard. But it's those tough decisions, like in terms of deregulization, and I'm not an economic expert, I won't pretend to be one, but those tough decisions set up the economic boom that we had in our country. And um, like when we have a lot of kind of like contentious political issues right now. Um, I'm not advising members of government. If they want my advice, they can pay for it. Um, but I would say um, make the decision and take the electorate on the journey. And if it's the right decision, you won't get punished at the, at the voting booth on polling day. It's, it's the chat with um, Jerry and Matt 
over the fire in the morning, isn't it? Mm. It's it's look, this is why it's important that we're going to do this thing tonight. Mm. And here's how it's going to work and here's how it's going to benefit you and benefit you. Ultimately, I will come out of it okay as well, but it's mm. it's it's taking the people on that journey. It's, I it? always believe that it's it's explaining your kind of decision-making process and it's being comfortable with the fact that other people are not going to be supportive but where you lose ground in one area you can make it up in others if I was to boil it right down when I do all of my kind of like survivor podcasts whether it's for talking tribal on 10 or you know other survivor podcast I come from the frame of view that the best survivor player and the best survivor game is one that's an active game and if they do something they're held accountable for and they go of course I did this and I took control of the situation in the palm of my hands. And I think that definitely applies with contentious political issues where one solution is laying low and not upsetting anyone and trying to scrape over the line for a second or a third term of government and then accepting the fact no government wins a third or a fourth time, like we saw that in New South Wales this time. Um, but sometimes the electorate and the people reward true leadership that make tough decisions that might be unpopular at a certain point in time, but it's the right thing to do. The idea of having the, the the visionary leader to get to that point, though, mm. is, I mean, you might see it a bit with, with particularly mentioned the Teals, um, you know, people that have come from the, the private sector mm -mm. and being big, big business leaders uh, outside. And you get someone like Kylie Tank who stands there in her first question time going, guys, people are watching this. Mm -mm. I've been to a five-year-old at a party at a trampoline park that's got mm -mm. more decorum. Come on. There's people in the, there's children here. Mm -mm. Guys. And there's fair enough, too, because mm -mm. it's question time in federal government is a fucking playground mm, and it's ridiculous it it's, it's it's the game it's but it's it's bullshit but I, and i do so getting getting that person who's who's got that vision got that leader can they survive going from pre-selection in a in a safe seat all the way to the top well like sometimes they don't to be honest because um there's just different priorities at play and when when there are those different priorities in terms of like pre-selection and whatnot um you get like a certain type of candidate but that's how the system works but if I look at our federal government, to be completely fair, I think they're doing a pretty good job. Like, I think they're doing a pretty good job um, with the economic circumstances that we have in the world, with a lot of it outside of our government's control, and they're setting themselves up to try and win a second term. And the real test for them, if we're going to use the federal example, not limited to New South Wales that I'm more familiar with as a former state staffer, is, is that enough to make the big decisions the country might want to see on certain contentious issues in the second term, or should we pull the trigger and do it now? And sometimes you find out on election day, Osha. It's true. <laughs> like sometimes you just do that yeah. strategic campaign decision or government decision that gets made, you know, in the first third of a term, which we are federally, it's either the right or the wrong decision. And then you find out on election day. And uh, yeah, you're, you're pushing your chips. And, mm. and, you know, you're testing to see if this decision is going to make them, you know, see you there, see your bet, or are they going to fold? And Ab that, absolutely. And, that's life. And that's, that truly is. You, you make a decision and you test the assumption and you back the judgment mm. and if there's data behind it that supports it and whatnot, and sometimes you're either right or you're wrong. You know, if you win on the river, you win. And if you don't, <laughs> you move on and there's another election. <laughs> and And this is the beautiful thing about poker to go back to it for a second there very few times uh, are people willing to acknowledge 
the enormous contribution of luck mm. in their success. Of course. Because they want to take credit for all mm -hmm. of it. All right. There's absolutely no doubt that there's a huge amount of luck in the mm. career and the life that I have. Mm. My part was being ready for when the luck showed up. Mm. All right. Because the luck could have come and gone. Mm -hmm. But in poker, you know, it's like, fuck, there you go. It was literally 6% that that card would show and it up. Came. And it came. There we go. Huzzah. Uh, to talk about uh, having these interactions, sometimes it can be difficult. Mm. You mentioned the, the thing that happened with Simon at the Trouble mm -hmm. Council. He's a, you know, it was tough for me because he was, you know, there's parts of me in my stomach, I'm feeling it crunched up. I'm like, oh, because he's the, he's the guy at high school who would, oh, he's that guy. You know, he's, this, he's that character. He's mm -hmm. the, the, the jockey bloke who's, who's a bully to the fat kid. Mm. How do you in those moments when someone's meeting you with energy, Mm. hardcore energy, aggressive energy, because mm. they are also trying to use aggression. Mm. How do you stay calm? How do you stay focused? How do you not let the floods get you, your hands shake, your lip quiver? Mm -mm. What do you do? I think I was just focused on my plan and my strategy at that particular point in time, that episode seven thing. But um, it, it's sometimes it's like a game of tennis and like you can put a big serve in and that little well-angled, you know, counter four stroke will win the point straight away. And um, sometimes you beat fire with more fire, not just a fire extinguisher or you throw water on it. <laughs> and um, it, it's also just looking at it from the other end. Sometimes war brings war and peace brings peace. And what I did in Survivor after that episode seven war I had with Simon is I told myself I needed to pivot. And my pivot at Merge was to bring Simon on side and it changed the entire dynamic of the game. But if you're focused on what your goal and your strategy is and you have strong opposition or counter forces trying to stop your goal or, you know, idea being the one that comes to fruition, then you need fortitude to get the job done. Do you think moves ahead and do you go, oh, if I say this to him, he's probably going to react like this. I'm going to, do you go that way? I definitely did in Survivor. Like I, I did that constantly and, um, you, you, you have to tell yourself, say there are three possible outcomes in, in step one, and then you've got to work out the outcomes of those three outcomes from step two. And then if it's three again for each, then you're left with nine different outcomes. And you've got to work out which of those nine work for you and which don't. So in, in the game of Survivor, that's a bit easier. You know, there's always a tribal council and a mm. vote and whatnot. But the time I really needed to do that was... Um, in Brains v Brawn, my first season, um, it's when I had my key to an idol and um, we had eight players left in the game. We had this big marathon thing and only four people could be voted for. I think we had nine players left in the game, actually, and it was Kara, Danny, Way, and Laura. And I went into safety George first mode. I hadn't told even Kara about my idol. And then we thought we were all going to vote off Way, and then she said no at the last minute and they turned to me and they're like, we're voting off Kara. So then I, you know, we were about to go to tribal council. We all get pulled off to do our confessionals, which is a very normal thing to do before tribal council. And then I'm doing all my confessionals and then at the end of all of it, I remember the producer, he turns to me and he goes, oh, George, I just need to let Keely know what you're doing at tribal council. She was our executive producer. And I went, 85%. Voting for Kara tonight. I'm keeping the idol for me and I'm going to play that at the next tribal council. And he went, thanks, thanks. I'll let him know. Thanks. Like literally that's, that's, that's the response. And then as I'm, as we start like the long walk to tribal council, right before we walked off, I just saw Kara looking absolutely despondent, 
absolute despondent, like like her her life was ending because that's what mm. it feels like if yeah, you know yeah. like the chips are falling against you in the game of Survivor. And then I very quickly am doing the numbers in my mind and I'm like, okay, Kara goes tonight, I get myself to seven with my key and then I went and then what? Mm. Like what happens at seven? I, I lose my Haley and Way option because we don't hit the four magic number. Um, I'm always going to have people working against me, like in terms of the game. Laura's gotten too close to Danny. And I'm like, if I let Kara go tonight, the most likely thing that's going to happen is I go seventh, at best a miracle sixth. And there was a more difficult road where I saved Kara in the whole exciting way it happened that episode, winking at tribal council going, Laura, Laura. Mm. And then Kara got the hint, her one vote sends off Laura, going to damage control the next day, knowing that, Four out of eight is the magical number, and lo and behold, we got there myself, Kara, Wayne, Haley. So you have to look certain steps ahead when you're trying to do tactical, mm. strategic decisions, but you also have to work and massage all the time. But I guess that when you're thinking ahead then, we often get flooded or we often get confronted when we hit something unexpected. Uh, mm. And if you're thinking ahead, well, of course, you, this person's either going to be thrilled I'm telling them this or asking mm. them this, or they're going to be very angry. Mm. Either way, I know it's coming rather than like, oh, Mm. And then you're on the back foot and everything, as Mike Tyson says, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> if you were, I, I, I could literally talk to you forever, man. I, I find you a Thanks, you're a fascinating human thank being. You, thank you. So, so my plan already is that when I eventually do go on Survivor, mm -hmm. I, uh, you uh, and, and me are going to go into boot camp mm -hmm. and you're going to teach me so much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna Gene. I'm gonna Janine Ellis this shit. I'm just gonna like fully become strategy because I don't have. I can't think like that. I mm -hmm. have never had cause to. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I love how much detail you go into the book about how that happened for you and and, mm -hmm. and why it is that you went through that and and the way that you use it. But if you could tell people uh, just one thing about what it is to get what they want out of something from a person today, mm -hmm. whatever it would be, what would you tell them? Work out what you want. Seriously, work out what you want first, then try and work out what the other person wants and try and work out and navigate the path to get to something that's acceptable. You should not be afraid to ask for what you want or deserve or need and then that is your starting point from the negotiation. But if you project weakness in a negotiation, you're not going to get what you want. So you need to kind of like work out defensive measures to it's like you could be nervous it might not be an equal paying field in a negotiation you can work out some attacking measures and i go through a bit of it in the book work out what your enemies are going to use against you they're going to say this what's your response you know how can you attack them if it gets to that kind of nitty-gritty point as well and then once the deal is acceptable take it don't be greedy in a new like a deal breaking session if it works for you you're getting what you want the other side's getting what they want move on next deal Close it. Get Close out. Close it. Get out, move on. You got your win and be happy with it. Because sometimes people get greedy, greedy and they do it in life and then the shit hits the fan and then, you know, the foundations aren't strong and then everything collapses. It's I, I know you're uh, uh, particular about whose show you come on. Uh, so thank you for taking the time to come here today. No to my, problem. It was a my, delight. My construction side of a house right now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're the best, George. Thanks, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me in the studio. That was King George Mladenov. The book is called How to Win Friends and Manipulate People. It is fantastic.
stick. If there's a fan of Survivor in your life, please share this episode with them. You might even find a little bit that I've put on Instagram or TikTok. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. TikTok, you can share that with them. And please do subscribe to the show because people come and go all the time and that really, really helps us uh, here at the show, helps us keep the lights on. Thanks to everybody that helped me make this show. Andy Ma on audio and video post, Abby Benno who produced the show, Toe Hider who made the music, Ben and Monica for keeping the lights on at OGTV. I'll see you back here on Friday. Thanks for listening. Listener.